Last week we started um, this series, Come to Worship series, and we were talking about seven Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are translated into English as praise. Last week we looked at the word yada, and we, um, we found out that even though our word praise comes from it, it actually has, it's not an ordinary meaning. And so what it means is to lift our hands in reverence to God. And we talked about that and we studied it, and then at the end of the service, um, we got off Facebook and, and we watched a video, I lift my hands to believe again. And I wanted to look, I'm just trusting that a lot of you raised your hands for the first time in honor of our incredible God. Now today we're going to look at two different Hebrew words that are translated praise. And I want to give you the meaning behind them as we continue our series. The first word is zamar, or I've heard it both ways, zamer, but we're going to say zamar. So say zamar. You don't really do the R, zamar. This is a Hebrew word, and it means this, to make music and praise of God, to celebrate in song and music. Zamar appears 41 times in the Bible. Here's an example. Psalm 144.9 says, God, I will sing a new song to you. I remember, so I grew up in a fundamental Baptist church, and then we went to a Southern Baptist church, and I remember people fighting over new songs. Why should we sing new songs? They would say, let's just sing the old stuff. And, and the young people would bring this verse up. God says, sing a new song. And so I've always remembered that from the time I was four or five years old. I remember arguing in church about new songs, old songs. Why don't we do both? Anyway, I will sing a new song to you on a harp of 10 strings. I will zum. I will make music to you, God. Now, we want you guys to clap when you, when you sing. We don't care if you're on beat. We make fun of you because you're, you're, the, you're one of the least rhythmic churches I've ever been a part of. But that's not a part, that, that, that doesn't matter to your heavenly father. You need to make music. If you cannot sing, if you cannot carry a tune, you can make a joyful noise. That's why that verse was put in scripture, so that you can make a joyful noise. As long as you're happy and telling your face and you're worshiping God, go for it. That's what it means. Not everybody can play an instrument. Not everybody can sing, but everyone can clap your hands. Everyone can tap your toes. Everyone can make music to God, and we're supposed to do that whenever we come together. Um, look at this next verse, Psalm 717. This actually has two words in it that we've looked at now. I will yada you. I will lift up my hands to you, God, according to your righteousness, because you're a holy, magnificent God. I will be so overwhelmed in your presence that I can't help but lift my hands in praise. And then look at this. And I will sing. I will zamar. I will make music to the name of the Lord most high. Both, hand, both ideas, they're raising hands and making music the best you can. And then we get to Psalm 15. David's actually in a cave hiding for his life. He's been anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. The current king heard about it and is trying to kill him, chasing him around the wilderness in Israel. And David writes this psalm from a cave. This blows my mind. My heart is steadfast, oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give zamar in a cave. But we know David's like that. His heart is after God. And so in the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil. I'm going to be steadfast God. And can I tell you, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a, of a rainstorm in East Texas on December 13th, 2020, we can make praises to God. We can lift our hands. We can make music to a holy God. And you should do that. The second Hebrew word today is tuda. Say tuda. It's spelled toda, but it's pronounced tuda. It's, I didn't put this on your listening guide, but it's 32 times this, verse, uh, this word is used in the Old Testament. It's an extension of the hand, and here's how it's different from this. 
It's a sacrifice of praise. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It's a sacrifice of praise, something that you offer to God in worship. Thanksgiving, here it is, thanksgiving for things not yet received. When we're lifting our hands in yada, it's, oh God, you're righteous, you, you are holy, you're majestic, and you're worthy of my praise. When we lift our hands or we extend our hands um, in Tuda, it's expecting God to do something that he has not done yet or offering him something in our worship. And we're going to see that in just a minute. Now, um, if you've ever been to Haiti, the way those folks worship is contagious, they have no electricity in their homes. They have no running water in their homes. Pastor uh, uh, Jude that we went to in, in uh, Jockmel, he doesn't even have a kitchen in his house. You, the kitchen is a lean-to outside the building a, a few steps away where they have a fire pit, and that's where they cook. But when they worship, they, they raise hands to honor God, and then they fully expect God to meet their needs. And so when they take up an offering, I don't know anybody in, Haitian, uh, in a Haitian worship service that doesn't offer something to God. And I'm telling you, many of them su- uh, survive. They subsist on $1 or less per day. But when the offering plate comes around, they're not going to rip off God. They're going to give him worship. In Psalm 56, now this is right before um, this is the psalm before David was in the cave running from, from uh, King Saul. In this psalm, he's actually been taken captive by the enemy. It's while he was running from Saul, he goes to another territory, he's taken captive, and listen to what he says while he's in captivity. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. I love this. What can man do to me? If you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else because what can man do to me? Anything man can do to me is temporary. You take my life, I get to go spend eternity with the God that I'm going to yada for eternity, right? You cannot hurt a person who fears God because they fear him more than they fear anything else. And oh, how I wish there were more Christ followers who feared God more than anything else. In God, I've put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you, God, are binding. I will render praises. I will to die you. I will offer a sacrifice of praise before you ever do anything in response to my prayers. (laughs) David says, I know these people think they're in charge, God. They've got me, but you got me. And he believed God was going to deliver him. God had said to him, you're going to be the next king. The next king's not going to die in prison in a foreign land. God's going to deliver, so I will offer my hands in Tudah to you. We lift our hands not just for what God has done, and he's done a lot, right? When he was born, Emmanuel, God with us, that's incredible. He he died I just finished the, the book of Mark in my personal study, just finished the, the crucifixion and the resurrection Man, it's incredible what God did for us. But we also offer our hands in worship, expecting him to do something in the future because he's a God who keeps his promises. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this. Memorize this a long time ago. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I know it may look bad, but God, you're good. Our circumstances are terrible. God, you're good. We're going to trust you to do something only you can do. So when we lift our hands in expectation, we offer a sacrifice of praise. And that actually comes, that, that phrase comes from the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that openly profess your name. Here's the point. True worship, true praise costs you something. 
Too many people, somebody ought to say, I know that's right, baby. Too many people walk into the presence of God and expect God to do something for them, and they offer absolutely nothing to him. They stand there like bumps on the log. They sit in the pew just looking at their watches or trying to figure out when we're going to get out of here. And it's no wonder they never experience the living God. He won't waste his time on people who are arrogant, who are full of themselves. You offer something to God, you empty yourself, and you will experience God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. You want to see God, you better humble yourself. Do you remember when, um, when Moses was, he'd run from Egypt, he'd killed the Egyptian, he'd run from Egypt, he goes out into the wilderness. It was the wilderness, and, and he meets a priest there, and he marries the priest's daughter. He becomes a shepherd, and one day he's watching the sheep. He's walking around out in the wilderness. I mean, this is crazy wilderness uh, in the Sinai Peninsula. He's walking around out there, and he's got his, his, his shepherd's staff, and, and he sees this burning bush, and he says, you can read this in Exodus chapter 3 and, ver- and, and 4. He looks up and he says to himself, I will go see this strange bush that does not burn up. That's what he says. That's the, that's the translation. And so he walks over to this bush, and when he gets to the bush, the bush, he realizes is burning, it's not being consumed, and then this voice speaks, and it is God. And God says, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. So Moses takes off his shoes, and God says, I have heard my children Israel. They're suffering in Egypt, and I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to use you. I want you to go back to Pharaoh. Remember, he killed someone. Pharaoh tried to kill him. I want you to go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses goes, nope not me. And he argues with God. He comes up with five excuses over the next two chapters, three and four, why he cannot be the guy that God wants to use. And in the middle of those excuses at the first of of chapter four, God does this. Watch. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And this is what I want to know, new lifers. What is in your hand that is keeping you from worshiping God? that is keeping you from offering a sacrifice of praise because there's something some of you are holding on to, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a job or whether it's money or it's bitterness or anger, you're holding on to something and you come into the presence of God over and over and you hold on to that and you never experience God because God says, I want you to lay it down because watch what happens. What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. This is his shepherd's crook. So it's his, it's his weapon It's his source of comfort. It's the way he rescues the sheep if they fall off a cliff. It's the way he defends the sheep if if an animal attacks. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. For a shepherd, this is just remarkable. God says, the bush that's not consumed, that has the voice of God in it, says, throw your staff down. Moses does. What happens? What happens? Somebody tell me. It becomes a snake. And the Bible says Moses took off running. He really did. He's running from a hot rod. You know, this rod is a snake. And then, then God says, pick the snake up. Where does he say to pick it up? By the tail. Have you ever been to East Texas, God? You don't pick up a snake by the tail. Why did God want him to pick it up by the tail? Because as soon as he touched it, it became a rod again. What was God teaching him? You don't have to fear serpents. You don't have to fear Pharaoh. And he's beginning to teach Moses, you don't have to fear anything if you fear the living God. What's in your hand, people? Some of you are extremely afraid. 
What is it you're holding on to that keeps you from offering a sacrifice of praise? You can't hold on to it and offer a sacrifice of praise at the same time. Cannot do it. Whatever you're holding is a God to you. Now, our series comes from these verses in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. What's, what's the king's name? We're going to talk about him in just a second. At that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to do what? We've come to worship him. We're going to study what the, what the wise men do in just a minute. Whatever you're holding on to, whatever you refuse to let go of, is your king, and that's important because your king will determine your legacy. That's the next one there on your listening guide. Your king will determine your legacy. I want to tell you about who Herod's king was. Herod, he was declared king by Rome after he impressed the Romans, um, but he really wasn't a legitimate king. Um, and, And I want to tell you about what kind of legacy he left. He had 11 wives and 43 children, and he had 15 palaces. And in every palace, he had a swimming pool, a freshwater pool. Even the one Masada that we're going to go to this next summer that's right there by the Dead Sea, it's on top of a mountain. There is no water around freshwater. What does he do? He reconstructs all of the canals in the, in the cliffs and the, the valleys around so that for 17 miles, freshwater runs to Masada so that he can have a swimming pool on Masada and all of his other 15 swimming pools. So he goes on a trip one time and he tells his assistant, he said, if I die on this trip, I want you to execute my wife. So the assistant tells the wife and when Herod gets back, how do you think the wife responds? She's kind of distant. What do you think Herod did? He executed her anyway. He became suspicious suspicious of one of his sons. So this is his deal. When you build earthly kingdoms, you think you have to defend earthly kingdoms. He thought his son wanted his kingdom, so you know what he did? He drowned him in the family pool. I don't know which of the 15 palaces, but he did it in one of the 15 palaces. Two other sons he suspected were trying to take his throne because when, you're tr- when that's your legacy, you defend your throne. So he gave them an opportunity. These two sons, he let them write speeches. They stand up in front of an audience. A historian actually records their speeches where they said, Dad, we, didn't, we are not after your kingdom. We deny anything that you've, you've accused us of, and we beg you for our lives. You know what he did? Killed them. Because when you're defending an earthly kingdom, that's what you do. One time he had a dispute with the, with the most esteemed Jewish leaders. How do you think he responded? He killed them. Shortly before his death, he ordered that the Hippodrome, now the Hippodrome is where they used to watch chariot races. They have uncovered it. If we go to Caesarea this next summer, we'll get to see the excavation of it. Um, They believe that maybe as many as 500,000 people could sit in the Hippodrome at one time. He said, I want you to fill the Hippodrome with the, the best Jewish leaders. And when I die, I want you to kill all the Jewish leaders. When he was asked why, he said, because then I'll be sure that people will mourn when I'm dead. That's Herod's kingdom. So when he hears these wise men say, we've come to worship the one who's been born king of the Jews, you see how his kingdom was upset? He can't have someone a threat to his kingdom. It's why he eventually kills all of the boys in Bethlehem under two years of age because he's trying to defend his kingdom. But he lies to the wise men. He says, when you find the new king, come back and tell me so that I may come and worship him. Who's the only person that Herod ever worshiped? Herod. Verse 9 of Matthew 2. 
After this interview with Herod, the wise men went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. They saw this star from the east, they followed it, and now it finally stops in Bethlehem over the place where the child was. And I don't want you to miss the magnitude of what these wise men did. They traveled from what would have been known as Persia. Go ahead and put that picture up there if you would, Nate. So Persia is over here. You see Iraq and and those areas. We think they traveled 400 to 900 miles following this star with their gifts so that they could come and worship him. So I just got to thinking about 900 miles. If you were to travel 900 miles, when my parents were alive, they, um, they lived in Borger, Texas. Go ahead and, uh, well, no, don't put that up yet. Uh, every year we would go to Borger the day after Christmas. It's 487 miles. So we just round up and say it's 500 miles. We drove like crazy people. We stopped minimally for, for food and for bathroom. Um, we had to combine it all in one. So there was this Walmart in in Vernon, Texas, where we would get gas. I would drop Janie and the kids off. They'd run into the, the store. They'd go to the bathroom. They'd get their Lunchables. They'd come running back out. I would run in the store, go to the bathroom, and we're back off again. And it would take us about eight hours to go see my parents in Borger, Texas. So I thought, man, 900 miles. Look at the next one. So if we were to go 900 miles, 902 miles, we could make it to Denver. That's about... 13 hours or so if you're driving in your car. That's what Google Maps says. Or, okay, we're not going to go to Denver. Let's, let's go east. I think the next one is we can make it to Augusta, Georgia. I'd like to go to Augusta, wouldn't you, Brad? I'd like to go watch the, the uh, golf tournament in Augusta. That'd be awesome. Takes about 13 hours to get there. Or I decided to go east, and it's Lordsburg, New Mexico. Have y'all ever heard of Lordsburg, New Mexico? I've never heard of Lordsburg, New Mexico. I have not. I don't care. That's 900 miles away. If you're driving a car, if you're driving a car straight south from Palestine, you know where you end up? In the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, halfway to Cancun. Here's the point. If you're driving, it's going to take you 13 hours unless you go in the middle of the Gulf. That's going to take you a little longer. They didn't drive. We think maybe they had camels because they had expensive gifts. It would take them weeks or months to make this journey so that they could get to the place where the Savior was. And I want you to see verse 10, what happened. When they saw the star, when it stopped over the place where the child was, they were, what is this word? Come on, say it out loud. What is this word? It's raining. I cannot hear you. Say this word. Overjoyed. So I want you to write this if you're, if you're taking notes. The, the wise men were overjoyed. And I want to tell you what this word means. Um, the original language doesn't do it justice, or our translation from the original language doesn't do it justice. There's four Greek words that are translated, they were filled with joy or overjoyed. Another translation of the Bible says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's, it literally means... Um, they rejoiced with a big, humongous, overarching joy. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Where? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. And I'm so what? And I'm so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart, down in my heart. And I'm so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. Can anyone ever tell? that you have the love of Jesus in your heart. I'm going to tell you, a lot of you, your faces don't know. <laughs> because here's my problem with Christians today. Christians, too many of them are underjoyed. 
The wise men were overjoyed traveling hundreds of miles over incredibly difficult terrain so that they could worship a baby. And we have people that won't even come to church. I'm not talking about lost people. We have people who say they're Christ followers who it's too difficult to get to church. They're underjoyed when they get there. Don't come into worship looking like you're mad, like you've just been sucking on a bunch of lemons. Don't you come in here with a critical, unforgiving heart and then pretend you're worshiping. And don't you make worship about you or your agenda. Oh, this happens all the time. I didn't get anything out of worship today. I can tell you why. You've got a hard heart and you're holding on to something. And you didn't lay it at the feet of the Savior. You did not come into the presence of the living God and lift up hands of awe and worship. And you didn't offer a sacrifice of praise. It is that simple. Because I can tell you, when we would go 500 miles to Borger and we would go to my parents' church, my parents' church was the old one. Caleb, when he was, I think, I can't remember, he was about 10 years old, he drew pictures of me because my daddy wanted me to get in the choir with him. So there's like 12 80-year-old people in the choir and then me, and we wore choir robes, and Caleb thought that was the funniest thing, so he's sitting out there drawing pictures of me singing in the choir. But I'm telling you, if you'll offer whatever you have to God, even in that situation, I would be taking notes as the pastor was preaching, and, and the God of the universe would speak to me. There may be, actually there weren't 12, there's probably six people in the choir and probably another six to eight people in the congregation. Don't you walk in here and say it's about you or your agenda. And don't you come in and pretend, ah, yeah, look at me. And then gossip about the person sitting on the other side of the church. Mm -mm. It's not the way we do it. When you come in, if you want to have, if you want to be overjoyed, just try clapping your hands a little bit. Try tapping your toes. Try singing. Be known for being an overjoyed follower of Jesus. People should look at us and say, how come you're always happy? This just happened to you. (laughs) Terry's back there. Um, Cassandra Cooper got a kidney this last week. Nine years she's been waiting for a kidney. And, and Terry told me that she should get out of the hospital on Monday and she's going to go to the, to the suite. If you ever hear that woman's story, just stuff, cancer, dialysis, just unbelievable stuff. And I've never met a woman more full of joy. She sat back there in our small group one time and, and I mean, I'm trying to keep my jaw up as she just keeps, oh, that's not the end. And she's just telling her story. And at the same time, she's just talking about how good God is. And I'm going, wow, I want to have a faith like that. That should be normal for Christ followers. We lift up our hands in expectation. We bring a sacrifice of praise. Look, Look what the wise men did. As they traveled 900 miles, they couldn't wait to worship. Look what happens. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they, what's the first thing they did? Bowed down and did what? Worshipped him. Now, they bowed down and worshipped, and then look. Then they opened their treasure chest. Then they opened their hands. They, to the Savior. 
and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You worship, and when you worship, it costs you something. And you open your hands and you worship him. There was no hint of underjoyed giving. They weren't upset that they had to give. Two of my favorite um, presents that my, my girls have given me through the years. This is a pillow that Rachel made for me. I don't remember how old she was, but I've kept this pillow. Because back when I was a youth minister and I would have to travel, Rachel would get so upset when I would be gone. I'd go to youth camp or I'd go on ski trips or whatever, and I'd be gone. So Rachel made me a, a pillow. She's probably five or six years old. Janie had just taught her how to do it. And she brought it to me and she said, Daddy, I want you to take this pillow with you so you can snuggle with it while you're gone and remember me. I'm not going to let it go. It's one of my favorite gifts. One that Han did for me. Han did a, a picture collage here. And so it says, I heart you, and then it's D-A-D, and it's, it's so my Hannah's personality. Um, I love this, and, and it sat in my office here. It's over in my office over here, and I love these because they didn't cost much, but they came from the heart of my children. Caleb, I got nothing, dude. You hadn't made anything for me. <laughs> but I will say this. Probably three or four years ago, Caleb calls me up from College Station. He said, Dad, would you start playing golf with me? I hadn't played go golf since he was a kid because it cost money. And when he came, we had, he took it all. But he said, Dad, would you, would you play golf with me? And I said, yes. And we used to drive down just to play golf. And uh, the fact that my son wanted to spend some time with me, that's a big deal. They were excited to give me themselves or something that they made. Do you see how that translates to what we should be doing in worship? The God of the universe. We need to give him something. It's going to cost us to worship. Scholars for years have debated what the, what the gold, frankincense, and myrrh meant. I don't care what it means. They gave him something as they worshiped him. Last week, we talked about lifting holy hands. Well, today, I want to talk about what is it you're holding on to that keeps you from offering a sacrifice of praise. I mentioned it a while ago. Some of it's past hurts. You refuse to forgive. Some of it, it's, it's a job. It's, you're worried about other things. You're worried about the applause of people. All I'm going to tell you today is you cannot truly worship God until you let go. You have to release whatever it is you're holding on to because real worship cannot happen unless you give. And here's the, here's the bottom line why. Love gives. Janie's one of the most giving people that I've ever known. She loves to give. Christmas is, she's more excited about people opening the presents than the person receiving the present. And when she gives, you know who she's emulating? God the Father. The Bible says this in John three sixteen. God loved the world so much that he gave, not gold, frankincense, and myrrh. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God looked at creation. He said, they cannot do it on their own. I'm going to send my son down to be Emmanuel, God with them, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross and be raised again. And here's something I want you to see. I think I put this in there. Is that next verse there, Philippians 2, 6, Nate? Talking about Jesus, here's what Paul uh, says. 
Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He said, I'm going to give up the glory of heaven. My father asked me to give something up, so I'm going to give it up. I'm going to become a fetus. And I'm going to, I'm going to limit myself inside a human body so that I can pay the price for sins. See, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8 says. God didn't shout, I love you, from heaven. He showed it on earth. So Janie, um, for our first anniversary, I told you about my Nolan Ryan experience last week when I got to see him uh, do his seventh no-hitter. So for our first anniversary, Janie went to extraordinary lengths to get this. This was on, in the newspaper. She took it to Rangers Stadium. We had some folks in our church that worked for Rangers, and she got it. So this was the generic autograph. This is actually his written autograph on, on this picture, and there's my ticket stub that proves that I was there. Uh, row 14, seat 20, May 1st, 1991, and this tells you how long ago it was. Behind, so what did I say? Row 14. I was 14 rows up behind the third base dugout, and, the, and it cost 13 bucks. Um, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? She, she went to extraordinary lengths to get that for me because she knew that was such a big deal to me. Some of you would probably say, well, you know, I love God, but giving's hard. <laughs> well, here's, here's something for you to read, Proverbs 3, 5, and 5 through 10. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now look at this, honor. Honor means you, you think God is more valuable than anything in your life. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Honor means to worship, to adore, to praise. Solomon says, we're supposed to praise God with our finances, with our talents. We should be overjoyed to give because here's, here's the thing. If you honor God with the first fruits, and that's what it's called, the first fruits, the first percentage, not the last percentage, he'll meet your needs. We bring our first and our best and we trust God to bless the rest. Whenever I talk about giving in our church, anybody who's given the tithers nod their heads are like, yes, I understand what it means to give. And then there's a lot of people that, um, that struggle with this. Well, here's the thing. You should give a good portion, the first fruits of your wealth, wherever you're being fed spiritually. A lot of people give to ministries. That's great. I give to compassion, but that doesn't come out of my tithe. My tithe goes here. My 10% goes here where I'm being fed and where I'm, God has called me to be a part of. And then when I give to compassion, that's an offering. That's not my first fruits. That's an offering over and above. I'm overjoyed to be a tither because God has provided for us in ways we could never imagined. But it's not just giving of your money. It's giving of your heart, giving of your life as an act of worship. I'm blown away that people can't give one hour a week to God. I'm blown away when people say I'm too busy to serve one hour a week in our children's ministry or through guest services or kid check or Facebook, whatever it is. Now it's just too much. 
you don't understand, Doug. Sundays are the only day of the week that I have to rest. So I can't be bothered by going to worship the risen Savior. I'm holding on to my day off. We have people say, well, I really want to be in worship. So I don't want to go back there and mess with those children. I don't want to sit back there in the Facebook room because then I don't get as much out of it. I'm holding on to my agenda. I really want to sit with my family. You know how many times a year I sit with my family? Maybe twice. One time, I think the last time Casey was preaching, I got to sit with my family. I don't even think Janie got to sit with me that day because she was working back in the children's area. And we don't, we don't just go, ah, oh, it's too much to work in the children's area. If she's on the counter, she's going to work in the children's area. She's going to open up a sacrifice of praise. And, and so, <laughs> as you think about your life today, we're going we're gonna to listen to a song. We're going to worship. Some of you are going to stand up and your hands are going to worship God for his righteousness. But some of you... Some of you need to just bow down and say, God, I've been holding on to bitterness, anger. I've been holding on to money. I've been holding on to my schedule, my priorities, and it's why I've been missing you. So Facebook, you can find the the video in, in the comments, and I would encourage you in your living room to either lift hands in uh, yada, praise of God, or offer a sacrifice of praise. If nothing else, get on your knees in your living room and just open your hands and say, God, whatever I have is yours. Father, we just declare your goodness and your glory. Forgive us, God, when we forget to be overjoyed. Forgive us when circumstances seem bigger than you because there is none like you. There is none righteous. There's none like our God. You said, are there any other gods? And and then you answered and you said, there's none like you. So thank you that you left heaven. Thank you that you invaded this earth so that we might know what it means to worship and to have life everlasting. What can man do to me? We offer ourselves to you, God, and we ask you to change us in the name, the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.